On Biden's classified documents, the White House has begun to construct its stone wall. The lead starts right now. I'm going to refer you to the Department of Justice. I'm not going to go into any specifics from here. I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. The White House's refusal to answer questions is not going to stop them from mounting. Why did the Biden White House wait so long to acknowledge Classified documents had been found at Biden's private office and home and garage. And who has access to those rooms? Plus, a rising death toll after tornadoes sweep through Alabama and Georgia. Today, the search for even more victims as homeowners sift through piles of debris. And body cam footage capturing the cousin of a Black Lives Matter co-founder confronted by LAPD officers after a car accident only to end up tased and dead. What went so terribly wrong? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start in our politics lead with the White House on defense amid the growing probe into President Biden's handling of classified documents, which, in addition to the special counsel, also now includes investigations by two Republican-led House committees. This afternoon, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre insisted that President Biden takes protocol around sensitive information quite seriously. You're confident he followed whatever protocol was in place? Again, this is something that he takes very seriously. Uh, the president, when it comes to classified documents, when it comes to classified information, I'm not going to go into any specifics from here. This comes as a special counsel is investigating how a small number of classified documents from Biden's time as vice president ended up in his private office and in his home and in his garage next to his 67 Corvette. Today, CNN is learning new details about the kind of information that could be in those classified documents, including a memo from then Vice President Biden to then President Obama, as well as two briefing memos prepping Biden for phone calls with the British Prime Minister and with a former Prime Minister of Poland. But the headache may just be getting started for Biden. This afternoon, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan announced an investigation into Biden's handling of classified documents. And House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer is asking the White House for more documents for his committee's probe into Biden's classified documents pointing out that the address of President Biden's home, where more documents were found, was the same address listed on Hunter Biden's driver's license in 2018, the same year Hunter Biden was conducting business deals with foreign countries. This investigation coming just a few months after President Biden criticized former President Trump's handling of classified documents. When you saw the photograph of the top-secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself, looking at that image? How that could possibly happen. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? By that I mean names of people who helped, or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. Let's start with CNN's Phil Manningly at the White House, where the Biden administration is struggling to get this crisis under control. On the first full day of a president under investigation, an attempt to focus on business as usual. You know, uh, we meet at a remarkable moment in our lives. President Biden welcoming Japanese Prime Minister Kishida to the White House to highlight a transformational shift in the Pacific nation's security posture. 
as he ignored questions about the special counsel now investigating his handling of classified documents after his time as vice president. And his press secretary continued to deflect or declined to answer critical outstanding questions. I'm not going to go into any specifics from here. If you have any questions, anything further that's related to the review, or uh, I refer you to the Department of Justice or my colleagues over at the White House Counsel's Office. For Biden, who has maintained this. People know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. Even as the scale of the problem has mushroomed into a crisis over just five days. We're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. The outward appearance of normalcy serving to cover what has been described by officials behind the scenes as a scramble to adjust to a new normal. All as new details emerged from the initial batch of 10 classified documents discovered at a Biden-affiliated think tank, stored in a closet in Biden's office there, including a memo from Biden to then-President Obama, as well as two briefing memos prepared for Biden phone calls with the British Prime Minister and the President of the European Council. We have been transparent in the last couple of days. In, remember, there's an ongoing process, and we have spoken when it is appropriate. Even as details of another set of classified documents found at Biden's Wilmington home, in his garage and in an adjacent room, remain under wraps after their existence was publicly revealed nearly a month after their discovery. My Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. Just one of the many questions that remain unanswered for a White House facing a most perilous moment. We have said that we are going to continue to continue to fully co cooperate. We have been. Uh, the, uh, the president's lawyers and team has been fully cooperating uh, with the Department of Justice, and we're certainly they're certainly going to do that with uh, the, the special counsel. And Jake, senior White House advisors maintain that they believe once all of the facts are out, it will show that the right steps were taken with those documents throughout this process. And for the most part, advisors, many of which have no involvement in the next steps in the investigation, so they are going to be laser focused on what they had been prior to the investigation becoming a thing at all. However, the reality is it is a thing, and it is certainly one that brings a lot of uncertainty going forward. For now, though, officials and the president himself trying to act like it's business as usual. Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House, thanks so much. The appointment of Special Counsel Robert Hur to investigate the Biden documents marks the second time in just as many months that Attorney General Garland has had to appoint a special counsel. The other special counsel, Jack Smith, is looking into former President Trump and his handling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, which is quite different in how he behaved and also the quantity of documents. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now. Evan, what kind of political pressure are both special counsels experiencing? Well, you can you can just see all the political pressures that are built around all of this, Jake. Uh, the attorney general, uh, we're told, was aware of the, the, the finding of the at least in the initial batch of these documents uh, at the time that he announced Jack Smith was investigating uh, the two Trump investigations. And of course, you know, just just this past week, as the attorney general traveled to Mexico City with uh, the, the, the delegation led by the president, uh, he had already made a decision that he needed to appoint a special counsel to investigate his boss. Now, we, you've already seen the reaction from Trump world and from Republican allies attacking the investigation that's been ongoing by Jack Smith, the special counsel. 
uh, the new special counsel, who's now just on the job 24 hours, he's going to face different pressures. Uh, you know, there is going to come a time where investigators may need to talk to other officials around the president, maybe even the president himself. Those are things that are going to have to be weighed and perhaps approved by the Justice Department, by Merrick Garland. What kind of pressures uh, surround that is going to be another thing. Uh, you Keep in mind, both these men are running for president, uh, potentially, uh, for 2024. Evan Perez, thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California. Uh, Congressman, uh, thanks so much for being here. Good to see you. Happy New Year. Um, Happy are you year. at all concerned about the inappropriate way these documents were handled uh, from 2016 until they told the Justice Department and the National Archives about it last December, and also who might have had access to them. Jake, uh, we don't expect our leaders to be perfect. We do expect our leaders to have character and integrity. Obviously, people made mistakes. I mean, documents should not be in a, a private residence or outside the agencies. But the point is that the president is showing character. He is cooperating fully. He is not attacking the Justice Department. He's respecting the independence of the process. And I think people will look at this and say, look, this is why we elected him. Uh, the White House did not disclose this for months. And to this day, all that we officially know about the documents is what Biden's lawyers have told us. There hasn't been some sort of impartial or law enforcement source that has come and given us an explanation. You saw Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, not answering questions today. What grade would you give them on how they have handled this? I think they're fully cooperating. Look, I think eventually we need all the answers out. But right now, you have a special counsel. You have an investigation. The main thing is that they need to be cooperating with them. And who knows what the Justice Department has said. They may not want people talking about it publicly until the investigation is going on. But at some point, I do think that the president and his team are going to have to answer all the questions. My guess is the president probably wants to get all the facts before coming and giving the answers. He had some, he had some questions for, uh, for Trump on that 60 Minutes clip a few, from a few months ago where he said he was worried he doesn't understand how anybody could do something so irresponsible. He's worried about sources and methods being compromised. Obviously, the two situations are somewhat different. But in both of them, you have information that is not supposed to be out there, out there. Jay, one of the things we could do is be constructive about this. You know, as a member of Congress, when I go see classified information, I can never take it out of the skiff. I can't put, bring it to my house or to my office. Why can't we have that kind of a protocol in the executive branch. I mean, I don't see why these documents should ever be leaving the uh, White House executive branch. It's the end of Speaker Kevin McCarthy's first full week on the job. And this week, the Republican majority took its first uh, steps into launching its long list of investigations, including uh, Hunter Biden's business dealings, the origins of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, uh, President Biden's withdrawal of Afghanistan, U.S. troops, uh, DHS Secretary Mayorkas' handling of the border crisis, now, of course, we have added to this Biden's handling of classified documents. Do the Democrats have a strategy for dealing with all this? And, and, and some of them that might be constructive, such as the origins of COVID uh, or the withdrawal from Afghanistan, might Democrats cooperate? Jake, I know you get outside the beltway. Do real people ever talk about this stuff? They talk to me about Afghanistan and COVID. Sure. Not here's what I hear in my district. The price of eggs, inflation. Are we going to have a recession? What are we doing to improve the economy? That is, those are the issues. And that's what the, they, the Republicans campaigned on. They want the American Congress to work to solve problems. They don't want endless investigations. Do they want accountability in Afghanistan? Sure. I'm not saying don't have accountability. I'm on the Armed Services Committee. Fine. But don't make that the central focus of what you're trying to do. 
Uh, McCarthy made a lot of key concessions uh, to the rebels uh, to get the gavel. One of them was agreeing that just one member, one member, regardless of party, could force a vote to vacate the speaker. He also did a lot to, to liberalize the process, uh, to make it easier for any member of Congress to introduce amendments, to introduce legislation. Um, this is stuff that you might like uh, as a progressive, right? I mean, like, I could imagine people who are progressives who have kind of felt constrained by Pelosi's leadership or whoever before that, Tom Foley, before you were born, um, thinking this is a great opportunity, like, to... to uh, I mean, do you see a silver lining here, I guess, is my point. Well, let me be fair-minded. There are certain reforms that are good. The fact that a bill has to be introduced 72 hours before. The fact that you have an open rule, which means any member can uh, offer an amendment. That's a good thing. The fact that it does give some rank-and-file members more uh, of a say. But here's my problem. In doing all of this, Kevin McCarthy made a commitment to some of the far right in his caucus that he was going to hold this country up and not increase the debt ceiling, not pay the debt that we already owe, not about future spending. And that's what I find so concerning. It's not the reforms. Those reforms are fine. Well, what he agreed to, I think, is some sort of countervailing uh, spending cuts when, uh, to accompany any vote to raise the debt ceiling. I mean, just as a, as a member of Congress, we, the U.S. government spends much more money than we take in. This has been a problem for decades. I'm not blaming it on you. But this is a problem. We can't keep on doing this as a country forever because, I mean, the amount of money that our country spends just on paying the interest on the debt, that's money that could be spent feeding kids. We have a $32 trillion debt. I'm, I'm acknowledged that's a problem. But, Jake, let me put it simply. You've got a credit card bill that's due for past debt you've accumulated. You may, as a family, decide, OK, let's think about our future spending. Are you going to say, no, we're just going to default on the credit card debt? No, you pay the debt. And the United States government certainly should pay the debt. If you want to have a conversation afterwards on how we cut spending, and I can say we ought to cut defense spending and we can have that debate. But don't hold the prestige of this country hostage uh, on debt ceiling. We pay our debts. We're the United States of America. I hear you. I guess their point is nobody pays attention to the need to, to, to rein in spending or at least have the, the, the balance sheets line up uh, unless they're forced to. But I get you don't agree with that, that method. Last question before you go. It seems likely that Senator Dianne Feinstein is going to uh, retire. Are you going to run for Senate? I said I'm looking at it, uh, but we've got a number of great people in the race. I'm particularly interested what Barbara Lee will do. She's been actually someone I've admired since I was a kid, one of the strongest anti-war voices. So I'm going to wait to see uh, what she what she decides. All right. Brokana, Congressman from California. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. And then there are the classified documents found at Donald Trump's properties, many more of them. Why the Justice Department wants to talk with two specific people connected to that case. Plus, the reported discovery after a deep dive into the online history of the man police say is behind the tragic murders of four college students in Idaho. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. The U.S. Department of Justice wants to question two people whom Donald Trump hired to search his properties in November. Sources say this is part of the investigation into whether Mr. Trump returned all the classified documents to the federal government as required. CNN's Caitlin Palance joins me now. Caitlin, what exactly are federal investigators looking for here? Well, Jake, these federal investigators, they're going to want to know everything that happened at this search in November. And that was a search that turned up two classified records 
from a storage facility in Florida that was in Donald Trump's possession. That came a year into a criminal investigation, an obstruction of justice investigation, where many other classified documents in Trump's possession had already been found after the presidency. So since November, when those two people did that search on behalf of the Trump team as hired people to do it, uh, there's been a back and forth between the Justice Department and Donald Trump's lawyers twice now. One of Donald Trump's lawyers, Timothy Parlatore, has done two certifications explaining this is how we did this search in, in November, how we found these two uh, documents. The Justice Department keeps asking for more and more detail. Now they finally went to court, got the names of these two individuals uh, from a judge's order. Why do they want that? Because they're witnesses. Interesting. Has the Trump team responded to this request? Well, Caitlin Collins and I, in our course of reporting this, did uh, come to the conclusion that there are negotiations going on right now between the Trump team and the Justice Department in this. The, Don- the Trump team, their lawyers are saying the Justice Department isn't letting them be cooperative enough. Uh, but at the end of the day, it does appear that they're trying to limit some questions that the Justice Department can ask these two people. They're represented by the same legal team that Donald Trump's people uh, would be, rep- the Donald Trump himself would be represented by. Uh, and so, you know, at the end of the day, Donald Trump and his allies are never an open book when it comes to criminal investigations. They want to limit what the Justice Department can ask? Uh, they do. That is what our reporting, what we found. They, they basically want to say that these people who were hired were, they're not lawyers themselves, but they were hired as part of a legal team. And so what they did may be part of the work product of attorneys. So that may be able to be confidential. Doesn't sound particularly cooperative to me. Caitlin Plants, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Also today, a New York judge fined the Trump Organization $1.6 million, the maximum possible penalty for running a decade-long tax fraud scheme. This comes after Two Trump Organization companies were convicted last month of 17 felonies, including falsifying business records. Trump and his family were not charged. But one prosecutor claimed during the trial that Trump explicitly sanctioned the tax fraud. In response, the Trump Organization said in a statement, quote, We did nothing wrong and we will appeal this verdict. Or, of course, earlier this week, the Trump Organization's longtime chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, was sentenced to five months in Rikers after he pleaded guilty to 15 felonies related to the tax fraud scheme. Coming up, he was the cousin of a Black Lives Matter co-founder. He was involved in a car accident, but after police showed up, they tased him. Why? The LAPD body cam footage under review as the family demands answers. In our national lead, the cousin of a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter organization is now dead after Los Angeles police repeatedly tased him following a traffic accident. Authorities say after police arrived on the scene, 31-year-old Keenan Anderson resisted arrest, they say. They say he attempted to flee. They say he was warned multiple times before the taser was used. Police body camera footage shows Anderson in distress, begging for help, at one point saying, quote, they're trying to George Floyd me, unquote. CNN's Stephanie Elam reports on what one happened and what went so terribly wrong. The end of a police encounter, the beginning of a nightmare for the family of 31-year-old Keenan Anderson, the cousin of Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors, who posted, Keenan deserves to be alive right now. His child deserves to be raised by his father. Stay with your legs crossed. Police say it began with a traffic accident that witnesses said Anderson caused. That guy right there, he caused that accident. I think that guy's in a very paranoid state. 
Anderson was running around near the scene, police say, when an officer caught up with him. I don't want to be in the black. Over here. I want people to see me. He initially complied, dropping to his knees and putting his hands behind his head as he pleaded with the officer. Please, sir, I didn't mean to, sir, please. Hold on. Anderson later jogged into the middle of the road. Come here. Uh-huh. Where police restrained him and eventually tasered him. Turn over on your stomach right now. Watch your elbow, partner. You're trying to jaw for me. You're trying to jaw Stop it. Stop it or I'm going to tase you. Okay, stop it or I'm going to tase you. Stop it or I'm going to tase you. Stop resisting. Please. Stop resisting. Please. 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 I'm going to tase him. I'm going to tase him. They're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. The video, edited and released by LAPD, shows Anderson is tasered five times. He died later of cardiac arrest at the hospital. Keenan Anderson said they're trying to George Floyd me. They're trying to George Floyd me. And guess what happened? They did. Police say early test results indicate cocaine and marijuana in Anderson's system. Keenan Anderson was a high school English teacher in Washington, D.C., visiting L.A. during winter break. His death is one of three involving LAPD officers last week. This cluster of events, while miles apart, deeply concerned me. But police say officer-involved deaths are falling to all-time lows. The chief vowing a full investigation, as Anderson's school calls him, a deeply committed educator and father of a six-year-old son. He was beloved by all. And Jake, according to the LAPD, of the 2,000 times that there was a use of force last year, 31 of those resulted in death, and of those 31, 80 percent involved drugs or alcohol. Now, the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department says that number is still too high, but it is uh, the lowest it has been for the department. As for Patrice Cullors, the founder of BLM, who is uh, co-founder, I should say, but who is also the cousin of uh, Mr. Anderson, she tweeted earlier today or put on Instagram that her cousin would be alive if there were no cops at traffic stops. Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam in Los Angeles with a sad story. Thanks so much. Now to Idaho, newly unearthed online posts from the past are giving some insight into the mental state of Brian Koberger, the Ph.D. criminology student accused of quadruple first degree murder in those horrible stabbings of four University of Idaho undergrads. Koberger appeared in court yesterday for a pretrial meeting with the judge. Now he'll wait in an Idaho jail without bail for five months until his next hearing. Let's bring in Brianna Fox, a former FBI agent and associate criminology professor at the University of South Florida. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, this case has been of huge national interest with a particular focus on the suspect's field of study. You recently wrote an opinion article in the New York Times where you say in part, quote, it might make us feel safer to believe that something overt, such as someone's field of study, is a red flag for extreme violence, as opposed to, say, a personality feature that is difficult to detect. This leads us to think that we can identify a person with an aptitude to commit such a crime and prevent the individual from victimizing us, unquote. So you think his intention for allegedly committing this crime was likely much more complex and unrelated to his criminology background? Do you, do you think prosecutors or, or what, what do you think prosecutors are going to look for to determine his motive in these coming months before trial? Well, first, thanks for having me, Jake. Um, I, that's exactly what I think, that this is a very complex set of facts. 
Um, there's no one silver bullet that we can use to either prevent crime, uh, understand crime. It's a multitude of factors, and that's actually what our field is intending to do. Uh, I think it's actually just a red herring to say he was studying criminology to become a better killer. Um, research that we do in our field actually shows that criminologists are actually less likely to commit crimes compared to other people. So I don't think that's actually the, the reason why he was offending. The New York Times uh, combed through Koberger's online post from when he was a teenager. In one post, he wrote, quote, I feel like an organic sack of meat with no self-worth. This was in 2011 when he was 16. He added later in the same post, as I hug my family, I look into their faces. I see nothing. It is like I am looking at a video game, but less, unquote. Um, what does that tell you about his psyche, at least at, at that point in time when he was a teenager? Well, if he is, in fact, the person who committed these crimes, which obviously the prosecutors and police are working on at the moment, um, that would indicate that he has a, a low sense of emotion and empathy, which are two of the strongest predictors of whether people would commit violence. Um, not their choice of major or the way they looked or their intellect. Those are things that we often use as shorthand, um, again, to try to say, well, if I could spot this person, I could prevent myself from being victimized. In actuality, people can fake emotion or fake empathy. So that's one of those things that uh, it's hard to spot. It's a difficult to detect thing, but I think that what he was posting is actually that insight into where his head was at. Is there any piece of evidence so far that strikes you uh, as inconsistent uh, with the typical picture of how a serial killer or, or multiple murderer normally would act? Well, we are seeing that when he's in court, when he was stopped by police uh, after he was traveling uh, with his father back to Pennsylvania, there was a very low affect, uh, low emotion. So that is consistent with what we would say a person who is able to commit extreme violence would, would act like. Um, but again, he was trying to conduct very high level research. Um, he was seemingly engaged in the field in a way that was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and years of his life, uh, all dedicated to crime prevention, which is what criminology does. So I would say, again, that that's an outlier. That is not what people in our field tend to do, um, which is a misperception in the public. Do you think we'll ever know a true motive for whoever killed these four innocent young people? It's so difficult. Um, obviously, the police and prosecutors, number one, are trying to find out who did it. Um, that can be achieved through you know, data, uh, evidence, um, witnesses. But trying to understand motive, getting more in the head of somebody is more speculative. And oftentimes, the only way we really know it is when they say it themselves. Um, but people who uh, always want to maintain their innocence and don't want to um, you know, give that kind of closure, sometimes will never admit to it. So we may never know. Brianna Fox, thanks so much for your time and expertise today. Coming up, the new voicemail capturing a cry for help from an Iranian soccer player just spared execution. Stay with us. Back now with our world lead with questions coming from the new Republican chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and a pending congressional hearing. The Biden administration faces new scrutiny over the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021. This comes as the State Department is taking action now to allow the families of Afghans who frantically fled to the U.S. during the withdrawal to be reunited with their loved ones here in the United States. CNN's national security correspondent Kylie Atwood joins us now. Let's start, Kylie, with this new investigation by the House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, led by Congressman Mike McCall of Texas. What can we expect? 
Well, listen, a vast number of questions that uh, Chairman McCall asked to the State Department in this letter yesterday. It was 10 pages, and it's very clear that the committee is trying to cast a wide net as they look into the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan. They want to know what went into the planning. They want to know what U.S. Taliban uh, meetings looked like around that time. But they also want to look at, you know, the after effects and what is going to be the future of U.S. assistance to Afghanistan, the status of those Afghans who came here to the United States. It's very clear that this committee is casting a wide net to try and put a finger on the failures of the Biden administration. Because although, of course, there are reasons to reflect on this crisis moment in U.S. foreign policy, this chaotic withdrawal, this also comes with uh, political considerations. This is a House that is led by the Republicans who are investigating the Biden administration. Wasn't the Biden administration doing their own review of the withdrawal? Whatever happened to that? That was concluded almost a year ago, Jake, and we still have seen nothing from that review, which I think is hugely significant. It demonstrates that this administration really doesn't want to talk about uh, this event, which was a dark stain on their foreign policy uh, agenda, on their foreign policy uh, history here. And I think it's important to, to watch to see if they share the findings of their own review with this House committee as they're conducting their own investigation. And Kylie, when the withdrawal happened, tens of thousands of Afghans, many of whom had worked to help the U.S. government, they got on these evacuation flights fearing retaliation from the Taliban, fleeing for their lives. Now there's a move for those evacuees to be able to bring some of their family members from Afghanistan or wherever they might have escaped to to the U.S.? Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of these Afghans were scrambling to get out of the country. They were worried about what the future of the country would look like when the Taliban was poised to take over. And a lot of them uh, lost touch with their family members. They were left behind while they were able to come here. So now it's this new tool State Department has rolled out for those Afghans who are here in the U.S. on parolee status to apply for their family members who are still in Afghanistan to be reunited with them. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Also in the world lead. Cries for help from an Iranian soccer player spared execution for now as his country's brutal leaders sentence other protesters to death. In a span of just six weeks, Amir Nasir Azadani went from arrested to sentenced. He was accused back in November of being involved in the killing of three security officers. This was in the wake of Masa Jina Amini's death at the hands of the morality police one way or another as the Iranian regime tried to round up protesters. As CNN's Don Riddell reports for us now, supporters of Azadani says he was forced into confession, put through a sham joke trial, and is being tortured behind bars right now. Amir Nazar Azadani has been living the dream as a professional football player in Iran, but within the last few weeks, his situation has turned into a nightmare. After protests swept through the country in September, Iranian state media accused Nazar Azadani of being a member of an armed group that was charged in the killing of three security officers in November. The government says that he confessed to participating in the crimes and now faces 26 years in prison. Nazar Azadani denies that he's guilty and his supporters claim that he made a forced confession and was tortured in jail. In an exclusive voice message obtained by CNN with the help of the activist group Mamlakat, he can be heard appealing for help from within the prison walls. Yeah. 
که بتونیم شبه یه روزی کناره هم دیگه باشیم امیدم به اول به خدا تا بعدم تمام کسایی که بیرون هستن He's been in jail since December, where his family is worried for his safety, as the government has already begun executing protesters. <laughs> Last Saturday, the Islamic Republic executed two more young men, including the karate champion Mohammed Mehdi Karami, bringing the total number of executed protesters to four. That's according to the UN's Human Rights Office. Karami took up karate at the age of 11 and went on to win medals at Iran's national championships. But during anti-government protests, he was accused of killing a security officer and following a rushed trial supposedly based on a forced confession, he was found guilty and executed just a month later. The human rights organization Amnesty International says that his trial was a sham. His fate echoes that of the Iranian wrestler Navid Afkari, who was jailed for participating in protests and then executed in 2020. His defiance inspired other athletes to speak out as well, including the former karate champion Mahdi Jafar Ghalizadeh, who fled the country in 2008. I've got the plenty of messages from my young 17, 18 years old kids that they just, when they just see all these killing and torturing on the streets and all that kind of stuff they just they just telling me okay you know because they know me because of my background etc and they just say yeah I, like this life it's it's done for me like i'm i'm gonna kill myself athletes in iran seem to be battling a new fight against what activists are calling an unjust judicial system and they're making a plea hoping the international community will pay attention <laughs> At this point, the recording cuts out. Amir Nazarul Zadani says he'll have much more to say when he gets out of prison, but for now, he needs others to be his voice. Otherwise, he could be silenced forever. You know, I asked Madi Jafar Ghalizadeh, who we featured just then, what athletes in other countries who are watching this can do. He said simply that they should share what's going on to make sure as many people as possible know what's happening right now inside Iran. CNN has reached out to the Iranian government for comment about both Amir Nazar Ozadani's case and also the fate of Mohammed Mehdi Karami. Jake, we have not yet received a response. Back to you. All right, Don Riddell, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Coming up next, the destruction after a string of tornadoes in Alabama and Georgia, including one ripping across at least 50 miles, a young child tragically among those killed. Stay with us. In our national lead, communities across the southeastern United States are cleaning up after a line of storms spawned deadly tornadoes. CNN's Ryan Young is in Alabama, where one tornado may have stayed on the ground for 50 miles, causing damage across seven counties. It's a lot to take. I've been trying to salvage what I can all day, and it's just hard. It's hard. Residents in Alabama trying to come to terms with the catastrophic damage left behind by violent tornadoes that ripped through the state Thursday afternoon. Oh, my God, y'all, look. Oh, my God, this is the building beside us. At least nine deaths have been reported following the severe storms that spawned more than 45 reported tornadoes across the southeast. Seven of the deaths in Otaga County, Alabama. It was a very intense storm and may have even been on the ground more than 50 miles. Alabama residents describing the sound of the storm as something like no other. Just out of nowhere, 
I heard a sound I never heard before. It sounded like a freight train come through here. And the wind picked up so strong. I, I had to jump out and I ran out because everything was shaking like, like never before. Many roads are blocked with fallen trees and debris, making it unsafe and difficult for some residents to get back to assess damage at their homes. I have not been able to get back there to see what it looks like. The road that leads to my house is blocked and I couldn't even go around the other way. In Georgia, a five-year-old boy was killed when a tree fell on the vehicle he was traveling in. Unfortunately, it's been a tragic night and morning in our state. Tens of thousands of customers in Alabama and Georgia are still without power, and officials are warning residents that just because the storm has passed, the threat of damage from the storm has not. There's still some wind and a front moving through, so anything that's loose will still fall. Yeah, from above, we really have got a chance to see how this storm has damaged almost every single building near this main thoroughfare because the buildings and the roofs have just been torn to pieces. And in that wind, you can hear the roofs flapping all around here. Right in front of us, Jake, this is the railroad crossing. This was standing um, maybe about eight feet away over there. And you can see the wind just tossed that. But the thing that stood out to all of us, we talked to all the people who were inside that Renna Center early on, and they told us when the roof got pulled off, they were terrified. They got on the ground as the windows were blown out, the roof was pulled off, they were shaking. Everyone said they started holding hands and praying to God to be saved through this. And even as we speak, there are more aerial assessments going on. If you look right this direction, you can see a helicopter passing over right now. They're still trying to assess the damage in this general area. Jake. All right, Ryan Young, live on the ground in Selma, Alabama. Thanks so much. Coming up, Republican Congressman George Santos caught in yet another controversy, this time an alleged Ponzi scheme. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tabber. This hour, a chilling police report comes to light. Back in 2014, the now missing Massachusetts mom told police that somebody had threatened to kill her. Police say it was the man she ended up marrying. Plus, is there anything Congressman George Santos actually told the truth about? Newly discovered lies by the freshman Republican congressman uncovered by CNN, this time involving an alleged Ponzi scheme and other people's money. Leading this hour, the Ukrainian soldiers say they have not lost the fight for control of the eastern town of Solodar, refuting Russia's claims that it captured the town with the help of the Russian mercenary group Wagner. Fighting in Solodar has been nonstop all week. CNN's Ben Wiedemann was just two and a half miles from the fighting. He takes us to the front lines now. One mortar round off. The crew prepares for the next. Ostril! The target Russian positions in Solidar. The leader of this National Guard mortar unit, who gave us only his nickname, Engineer, says they need help to stop the enemy from advancing. We need 120 millimeter rounds for the mortar, he says. We'd also be happy if someone gave us, as a surprise, two mortars. The battle for Solidar rages on. Russian officials claim they've seized the town. The Ukrainian military insists they still control part of it. 
what the Russians now control under heavy fire. Ukrainian tactics designed to make every step forward come at a heavy price. Despite the battle nearby, this soldier, nicknamed Sova, is certain of how the war will end. To be honest, in the first days, I had some doubts because, according to the news, Russia has the strongest army, he says. But since we pushed them back from Kiev and Kharkiv, I'm confident we can win. For the few remaining civilians near Solidar, exhaustion. Nine months it's like this, says Valentina, flying back and forth over my head. With conflicting rumors coming from the town, Paulina says her family is leaving. The soldiers are surrounded, she tells me. My sister, who's pregnant, decided to leave, so we'll follow her. Late afternoon, and Ukrainian Marines prepare a fresh salvo of rockets. The battle for Solidar is not over yet. And for a, an army that's on the defensive, what we saw was that the Ukrainian troops are pretty well again pretty well organized and morale surprisingly high. Now, it seems the Russians are really throwing everything they've got to take this town for more symbolic reasons than actual strategic ones. And it seems that uh, they are going to press this offensive until they finally do take control of Solidar. Jake? All right. CNN's Ben Wiedemann in Kramatorsk, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Jill Dougherty. She's an adjunct professor at Georgetown and a CNN contributor also with us in studio, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Bill Taylor. Jill, let me start with you. Solidar, just a small mining town, um, but obviously it's a means to an end for Russia, and that end is controlling the key city of Bakhmut. It took months for Russia to make even these small gains, and it's worth noting Ukraine still controls about 35 percent of the Donetsk region. The Institute for the Study of War think tank adds, quote, even taking the most generous Russian claims at face value, the capture of Solidar would not portend an immediate encirclement of Bakhmut. Do you, do you agree with that assessment? I do. Um, I do think maybe what the Russians want to do is pin down and destroy as many Ukrainian soldiers as they can in this battle, because we, we all know that in the spring, everyone is expecting some type of offensive. So it might be a way of just kind of destroying them. But I think, Jake, one of the most stunning things about this is this fight, this political fight over who actually, you know, is winning in terms of whether it's regular Russian military or this, as you already mentioned, the Wagner group under the control of Mr. Prigozhin. It's incredible. Ambassador Taylor, um, two days after crediting only Russian regular forces for the gains in Solidar, the Russian Ministry of Defense admitted that the Wagner group, this dark, brutal militia, uh, spearheaded the effort. A top Ukrainian official says the infighting between the defense ministry and the Wagner group is, quote, a good sign of the beginning of the stunning end. What do you make of the squabbling? I think the squabbling, Jake, is exactly what Jill said. It demonstrates that they've got problems. Uh, President Putin can't figure out what commander to keep. He's had three commanders. He's had four commanders. They've lasted three months each. 
Uh, and now he took his chief of staff, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, his General Milley, and put him in charge of the battlefield. So they've clearly got problems, and this infighting between Wagner and the regular military is a symptom of that. Let, let, let me follow up on that, because uh, what you're talking about on Wednesday, Russia's defense ministry announced a new commander for the, this war in Ukraine, the chief of the Russian general staff, Valery Garas- Garasimov, uh, becoming the overall commander of the campaign. As you know, that's an extraordinary thing. It's like putting the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, in charge of, of a war uh, as opposed to running the, the Pentagon. Um, one Russia expert told us, quote, it's kind of a demotion or at least the most poisoned of chalices. It's now on him, and I suspect Putin has unrealistic, unrealistic expectations again. Do, do you agree with that? I do. Gerasimov is the one who failed in the beginning. He planned that attack on Kiev, which we know was a disaster for the Russians, a blunder. And, they, and Putin has put him back in charge. Why would he do that? It's probably to pin him in, pin him the, the, the destroy of the, the destruction of the Russian military is going to be on Gerasimov's shoulders. And Jill, the Wagner group is led by Putin's friend uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Um, does Putin's army look weak? acknowledging that it's this private militia that has made the most impressive gains in months? I think they really do. I mean, today, as I was watching this, I couldn't believe it. First, you know, uh, Prigozhin says, we're the guys who took Solidar. Then, uh, and don't, uh, don't be fooled, there were no regular military in there. And then, of course, the military say, yes, we were there. And then it ends at the end of the day uh, by the military saying, well, actually... We both did it because the Wagner troops, you know, went in there first. It it was really embarrassing. And I think to pick up on what Bill is talking about, you know, Putin over the years, not just with the military, but with his officials, he's always played people off against the other guy so that he remains on top. But here, you know, I I don't know whether he's actually in control of uh, playing people off because they're beginning to play against each other. And that is extraordinarily dangerous when you're in the middle of a war. And, and let's take a, a step back almost a year into this war, Jill. Ukraine's gains, when you think about it, have been remarkable considering how outmatched they are, at least on paper. Russia's military clearly struggling. But if this drags out for much longer, there is a fear that allies could pull back on the aid that Ukraine cannot fight this war without. Um, what can the U.S. realistically do to help Ukraine end this war as soon as possible? Well, I think provide as much uh, weaponry as the Ukrainians say they need. Now, I realize, of course, the president cannot give every single thing. And there continues to be grave concern that, you know, if you have a direct attack on Russia, you could be in a war with Russia directly. I understand that. But but Ukraine now has much better equipment, much better tanks, more tanks than Russia does at this point. So I think that's that is the key to victory. They've got the spirit and they need those weapons. What what, what do you think? Totally agree with Jill. Um, If we continue uh, to provide the weapons and all of this armor that's gone in over the past two weeks, Jake, all the armor from the UK and the French, uh, the Americans, the Poles, uh, this is this is going to enable the Ukrainians to take the offensive soon, and they can disrupt any counteroffensive that the Russians might mount. All right, Ambassador Bill Taylor, Jill Darity, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. It was described as a, quote, classic Ponzi scheme, the new lie from Republican Congressman George Santos. Uncovered by CNN. Stay with us. 
And our politics lead embattled Republican Congressman George Santos is facing growing questions about a company he used to work for, a company that the Securities and Exchange Commission describes as a, quote, classic Ponzi scheme. Santos worked at the firm more than a year before it was sued by the SEC, but once it came under federal scrutiny, Santos claimed he was unaware of the fraud accusations in social media posts reviewed by CNN. CNN's Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill with more of this, which was uncovered by CNN's K-File Manu. A since-deleted tweet from Congressman Santos contradicts his claims of ignorance. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is from 2020. He was working at this company, and a customer had tweeted saying that this was fraud. He said the customer called it a complete fraud. And Santos responded in this now-deleted tweet saying that our SBLC is 100% legitimate and issued by their institution, calling it 100% legitimate. Now, this was about a year before the company was accused by the SEC of being a Ponzi scheme. Now, uh, Santos later said he was completely completely unaware of these allegations. But he did say in 2020, before those accusations surfaced, that he was head of the New York, uh, head of the New York office of this company, that he managed a $1.5 billion fund. Now, this all comes, Jake, as many, many questions continue to surface almost daily about Santos's past, him lying about his past, admitting to a lot of those lies, and new revelations here about this company that faced these very serious accusations. And that he said before claimed he didn't know about these accusations at the time, contending in 2020 that it was a legitimate company. And, and, and Manu Santos is facing many calls from fellow Republicans to resign. Uh, yesterday, Speaker Paul Ryan, former Speaker Paul Ryan, said he should resign, that it wasn't just an embellished candidacy, it was a fraudulent candidacy. How is uh, Santos responding? He's still digging in, Jake. Today he is not here. With the House is not in session, but he's making very clear that he's not going anywhere. He's got the support of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who indicated that it is up to the voters to decide. But he does not have the support from seven of his colleagues, including five from the New York delegation, one of which is named Brandon Williams, who said on our air last hour that the, the responding to McCarthy, who said it is up to the voters, uh, he said to us, he said he won by eight points his message resonated, but now the package around that message is falling apart and there are new revelations every single day. He, the same Congressman Williams contended that this was a distraction for his party, saturating the market, and Jake, he said it's like an episode of the Tiger King. New revelations coming up every day. All right. Manaraja on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. Abby, the troubles keep piling up. Uh, we have uh, the ethics investigation. K-File uncovered this classic Ponzi scheme. He's facing federal and state investigations, questions about how he was able to loan his campaign $700,000. Is this guy just going to s- stick it out, do you think? I mean, there's really no mechanism to make him go. I mean, if he chooses not to go, even if Kevin McCarthy told him to go, he would be, have to be the one to d- submit his resignation. And really, it just speaks to a shamelessness right now in our politics, and also this idea that he feels like there are no real consequences. I think he's also empowered knowing that McCarthy needs him. He needs that extra vote uh, with the margins as thin as they are and Democrats really eager to take this seat back in a, in a Biden district. Uh, it gives him a lot of power to hang on for as long as possible. I mean, it seems like he's been doing this his whole life, right? I mean, his whole life he's been getting away with these various things. He just keeps going. He just keeps pushing ahead. And now maybe he has found like the one career where you're not going to get fired if you do this stuff. <laughs> you can't, you literally can't be fired. He before for this seat. He ran last cycle as a very Trump-affiliated candidate. Everyone, even including Republicans at the time, thought he was a joke and didn't pay attention. 
No one really anticipated that the red wall would be made in New York districts, and suddenly he shows up and he's a member of Congress. He's having a field day at this point. Yeah, I think I think Abby hits on it though. If if, if Republicans had a thirty seat majority, Republicans would turn on him much more forcefully. But with a four seat majority, they just don't have the the play for it. What I find more interesting in some ways is that. You know, Republicans in New York State are doing better than they have in like 30 years. It's kind of like they found their groove a little bit. And so you have these other Republicans in New York State saying, this guy is ruining our brand right as we're starting to fix it. And it's sort of like, you know, how the saner saner people after the midterms were like, see how all this Trump stuff hurt us in all these races? They're thinking that this is a drag on the brand in New York State generally. Go beyond New York State because that's part of the Biden strategy is to show how the Republican Party is no longer normal and Biden and everything he stands for is the norm uh, that'll welcome independence. And so uh, you have Kevin McCarthy trying to maintain a majority to do what? Right? What is he trying to accomplish? And you have to do that with someone like George Santos as an albatross around your neck on TV every day, yeah. attracting cameras. Well, James Carville says that the Democrats should should welcome George Santos. It's just a way to continue to attack the Republican Party. I mean, how many times have we heard Democrats call the Republicans the party of grifters and con men? I mean, they use that because that's how they portray Donald Trump and some of the activities he engaged in throughout his career and subsequent political life. Um, But this guy fits right in with their message. Although I think Democrats would rather have the seat. Of course they'd rather have I, I think they would rather have the seat. I don't think that they would take a George Santos as a boogeyman over a seat in the House. And so that they are pushing to get him out. But I, I also think, you know, we talked about the money. The money remains a huge problem for him. There's some real legitimate questions about where it came from. This is a man who... Who's going to look into it? The Federal Election Commission? Well, I mean, I think... I think someone's going to look into it. Someone yeah. who uh, went Suffolk from ba- being be made, basically right. bankrupt right. to loaning, him, loaning himself seven hundred thousand dollars. Criminal charges. That's a huge red flag. They're financial. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's the thing here, right? If 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 we don't know, it's more than just um, you know perhaps he had some donors that you know the FEC is going to enforce that he violated the campaign finance laws. Like when you loan yourself seven hundred thousand dollars that nobody can explain why you have seven hundred thousand dollars. That's potentially tax. Fr- I mean, that's a lot of potential there for anyone <laughs> to investigate. It's just one member of a 435-seat body. Why are we so fascinated by it? I think it's because he's just so weird. It's just such a freakish, strange story. You, Something's obviously wrong with it. If you listen to his defenses of himself, whether it be on YouTube uh, and the way he answers questions, and you try to connect the dots of how you get from A to Z, it is very difficult to follow him saying, uh, I, well, I embellish my resume a little bit, I'm not a fraud, I'm not a liar, and just keep going and digging this hole deeper and deeper. And so it's that psychology that we're watching unfold of this is somebody who probably believes what they're doing when they say it. It's freakish in a weird way, but it also, honestly, to me, it says a lot about our politics. This is someone who constructed a fake identity for himself, tapping into all of these different parts that are kind of hot-button issues. He's a gay businessman, Republican from New York, who's Jewish, and whose mother died on 9-11. Or in the Holocaust. Or in the Holocaust. It's like literally every buzzword he could think of. He constructs a fake identity, and it works. And I think it really kind of, unfortunately, says a lot about how we shorthand politics. We look for all these triggers to tell us, oh, this guy is acceptable to the red team or to the blue team. And I think people bought it hook, line, and sinker. There's also just a lot of institutional failure, right? I mean, the Republican Party should vet candidates. The Democratic Party should do opposition research. They did. Yeah, but 
Not well. well. Not well. <laughs> I spoke to several people in the district, many Republicans, and they said they knew that he was a fraud. He had run before. They thought he was sketchy and shady. Didn't expect him to necessarily go anywhere. Many people just stayed out. That is not a high turnout seat this year. Uh, but they said that at the end of the day, it, it, they thought that it was better to have somebody who was going to be part of their Republican majority. I don't know that Democrats this time would have allowed that type of candidate to go forward. So it does show the divide in the parties of what is acceptable and what is not. Well, and I think that this also hits on something um, that is really important and fundamental to your point about where our politics is today, which is that people are so tribal. They are so like putting on the shirt for their um, candidate and their party that they are willing to believe whatever these politicians are telling them about how the other side is just lying and not telling the truth. And people are willing to believe it. Um, and we saw that, you know, with Donald Trump. I mean, people, there are a lot of people out there who have been willing to, be, to believe him when he says that Joe Biden didn't win the election. We all know it's not true, but that right. doesn't mean that there aren't Americans aren't out there who aren't led in that direction. And this is a much smaller example, right? This is someone who, you know, we're not talking about who's actually running the country, uh, but the phenomenon is the same, and the set of dangers, I think, are the same. And what the person is capitalizing on is that idea that the more outrageous the lie, the more we're like, well, you couldn't possibly be lying about being Jewish. Right. You couldn't possibly be lying about who your mother is and who your parents are. Wow, it is, it is that extreme that we're, we're stuck believing it because it, it strikes us as difficult to understand how somebody could go through life this way. Did you see, um, I guess, Congressman Matt Gates? was a substitute host on Steve Bannon's The War Room. I missed that. You missed that? That's <laughs> <laughs> tragic. But maybe you saw it. My point is... I was shaving with a cheese grater, which seemed more attractive, but anyway. <laughs> right, right. You volunteered for Root Canal instead of... But, but my point is that he had George Santos as a guest. Yeah. And asked him a couple of old people say there's a problem. You know, it was, I wouldn't say it was the hardest-hitting interview. I mean, he's a member of Congress. He's not an interviewer. But it just gets to the whole... Putting on your team jerseys, let's figure out. I mean, I was surprised. And George Santos lied yeah. in his answer to Matt Gates, claiming that he's never, he actually said in that interview that he's never lied about anything or never been accused of any wrongdoing. He's been accused of fraud in Brazil, and they're still looking into that. The, uh, to, your, to your point, he also said a while back, he was on with Laura Trump on it in an interview saying that he attended the January 6th riot, and that was also another way for him to kind of signal to the base right. that I'm one of them. I mean, I have no idea if he was in the ellipse for the January 6th rally, but just given all the other lies, it's, it's worth it. He I should get a gig working for Dosecchi's as the most interesting man in the world, because he can say anything about himself. <laughs> he, he absolutely could. But I mean, the, the point I was making, though, is just like, I, I was surprised during the um, speaker race when the cameras were working uh, the way they were supposed to, and people were like talking to him on the floor uh, of the I mean, house. What else were they going to do? I mean, ignoring I don't know. I, I, I might freak. have. Well, like, I, I, I might have. They, a lot of them were ignoring him, though. I mean... Uh, for the some, first couple nights, for sure. Some people yeah. were talking to him, but he was a little bit of a pariah. And there were a lot of shots of him sitting alone, not really knowing what to do. He spent a lot of time in the speaker's uh, closet, not coming, only coming out to hear his name called and to vote. Well, I'm just waiting for him to take an oar to Dickie Greenleaf's head in the third act. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, thanks to one and all. Be sure to catch Abby on Inside Politics Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Coming up, a juicy tale of alleged corruption involving so-called mean girls, business favors, sexism. We're traveling way outside the Beltway for this one, but staying in the United States. Stay with us. 
And we're back with our national lead. Allegations of corruption and scandal are playing out in Anchorage, Alaska, after a city manager there accused the mayor of firing her illegally. CNN's Natasha Chen is on the story. Natasha, what specifically are these accusations against Anchorage Mayor Dave Bronson? Well, Jake, the accusations are really wide ranging and shocking city leaders. It's all outlined in this 11 page demand letter written by the attorney of this fired municipal manager, Amy Domboski, who was fired in December after she says she brought up a lot of these issues. And I just want to point out some of the highlights from this document here, some examples of what she's saying. She says the mayor at one point shut off the fluoride supply to the city's water. We a lot of our cities have fluoride in the water to help prevent tooth decay. And she says he's not allowed to just shut it off. She says he pushed through contracts without assembly approval, fired an employee because that person wouldn't give a contract to a friend of his close associate. And she says he condoned highly inappropriate behavior where people would tell highly sexualized jokes and in one case even passed out genitalia shaped cookies. I also want to point out an incident in the letter where she says she wrote an email to a male subordinate employee saying that his email was suboptimal. And she says the mayor reacted really poorly uh, using hand gestures. In fact, uh, quote, the male employee is up here and Ms. Domboski is down there. Uh, the subordinate employee is a man and making clear to Domboski that she wasn't to speak to a man that way. Now, uh, here she is. Here's Domboski speaking to our affiliate, KTUU. The concerns that I raised um, directly to the mayor, I believe that's the reason I was terminated. I think it was retaliation. We have reached out to the mayor's office. Uh, They have not responded yet. Uh, The assembly there, uh, like we have council members in other cities, their assembly doesn't have authority over the mayor. It's a very strong mayoral system. Now, Mayor Bronson identifies as a Republican. It's a highly divided uh, political atmosphere there where we're told that a lot of people support him wholeheartedly while others are now calling for his resignation. Jake. All right, Natasha Chen, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning now to our money lead, the struggle is real for thousands of small businesses that now must start paying back thousands of dollars in federal government loans that they took out to survive the pandemic. As CNN's Gabe Cohen reports, inflation, supply chain problems, and staff shortages mean that recovery is far off for many businesses now facing these additional loan payments. At Teddy and the Bully Bar near downtown D.C., business post-pandemic has never been the same. I'm still climbing the hill. COVID closed two of Alan Popovsky's four restaurants. Government loans saved the other two. But with city centers struggling to bring back traffic, his revenue is still down more than 45 percent from pre-pandemic. And Alan says they're struggling to stay open. And now it's time to pay back those loans. It's very difficult. We just got over paying back the landlord. You're just a hamster spinning on a wheel. At the start of COVID, with business stalled, nearly 4 million small business owners took out what are called economic injury disaster loans, or EIDL loans, from the federal government. On average, about $100,000. In many cases, just to stay afloat. 30 years with a fixed interest rate of 3.75%. And unlike some other pandemic programs, EIDL loans were expected to be paid back down the road. Now the first monthly payments are coming due. Most businesses will owe money by the end of January. It's daunting. 
Allen says he owes more than $3,700 per month, roughly $780,000 in all, a lot of which he says he spent on rent and payroll. We can't afford anything, but what we're doing is we're paying interest only right now. So you haven't made a dent on the actual loan? Have not made a dent on the principal. A new survey from a leading small business association found only 36% of its members have reached their pre-pandemic sales levels amid staffing shortages, supply chain issues, and inflation. Now add a possible looming recession just as these loans come due. It is one more cost that they're going to have to deal with. Some small business owners, unfortunately, are going to struggle in kind of meeting those obligations. Let's open up your diaphragm here a little bit and see if it helps. Lisa Klein says COVID is still keeping some clients away from her physical therapy practice, making it tough to pay off her idle loan, nearly $1,000 each month with 80000 to go. All the costs of everything have gone up. We can't pay the staff what we'd like to pay the staff. The whole business is still suffering. And this is just kind of adding insult to injury. The Small Business Administration says struggling businesses can declare hardship and make small partial payments for six months. But interest keeps accruing, forcing owners like Lisa Klein to weigh short-term protection against a big bill down the line. We have no choice because if we don't keep paying it, it's going to accrue more interest. And another survey from that same Small Business Association found that right now, Business owners are feeling less and less optimistic about 2023 and that potential recession. And Jake, all of those uncertainties are just adding to the stress of having to pay back these loans right now. All right, Gabe, thanks so much for that important report. Appreciate it. Coming up next, new information about that Massachusetts missing mom and a chilling death threat that she received. Stay with us. In our national lead, a disturbing discovery in the case of the missing Massachusetts mom. In 2014, Anna Walsh, the missing woman, told police that someone threatened to kill her and her friend. Police discovered that the threat came from Brian Walsh, whom Anna later married. The mother of three was last seen on New Year's Day. Her husband is currently behind bars. He's been charged with misleading police about his whereabouts around the time she went missing at the beginning of the year. Since then, investigators have found blood and a bloody knife in the basement of the couple's house, as well as a hacksaw and bloodstains in the trash at a nearby landfill. That's in addition to the how-to-dispose-of-a-body internet search made by Brian Walsh and the hundreds of dollars in cleaning supplies he bought after his wife disappeared. CNN's Jason Carroll is in Cohasset, Massachusetts. Jason, tell us more about this 2014 police report. Right. That was a report, Jake, as you know, that was filed on August 3rd in 2014, filed in Washington, D.C., because that's where she had been living at the time before she was married. And apparently she told police that Brian Walsh allegedly, and this this is again, according to the incident report, made a statement over the telephone that he was going to kill her and her friend. Now, according to what we've learned from this, there was no charge in this case. This is a felony to make a threat like that, but no charge simply because, again, according to this incident report, the victim refused to cooperate in the prosecution. Um, Again, this is another disturbing detail, one that prosecutors currently are going to be interested in. But again, another disturbing detail in a case that's just really been filled with them. And Jason, what's the status of the items that police collected from that landfill and also at the house? Those, I assume the, the items are being tested. 
That is correct. Well, look, we've spoken to uh, a number of forensic experts about those those tests. And what we're told, Jake, is that those tests can take several days because what you have to do when you, in, in the example of the hacksaw, for example, that was retrieved from that trash facility. They've got to see if there was blood present. So there's a test for that. Then there's a test to see if they can extract the DNA from uh, that blood sample. And then yet another test to see if you can then get a match between that and that of Anna Walsh. This can normally, according to experts, take several days. And if you look at the calendar, those several days should now be just about up. Jake. All right, Jason Carroll, thank you so much. As anti-Semitism rises in the United States, a TV show on Amazon Prime takes a look at what would happen if they tried to form a fourth Reich in the United States. Stay with us. You look as if you see the ghost. Now for our buried lead stories we think are not getting enough attention. In this case, two European countries that may be on the path to war. Armenia and Azerbaijan are south of Russia between the Black and Caspian Seas. The disagreement is over a self-governing region called Nagorno-Karabakh. CNN's Nick Robertson shows us why a month-long blockade of a key highway there may lead to war. Empty supermarket shelves in Nagorno-Karabakh are signaling a simmering land dispute between neighbors Azerbaijan and Armenia could be coming back to the boil. It's barely two years since they were last at war. We don't have medicines, this pharmacist says. No medicines for blood pressure, painkillers, baby food and nappies. I've been working at this market over 30 years, she says. I've never seen anything like this. The market is completely empty. The recent round of troubles between the historic enemies fled 12th December last year, when eco-activists aligned with an Azerbaijani government NGO, or non-governmental organization, blocked the Lachin Corridor, the only highway linking Armenia with the Armenian-majority Nagorno-Karabakh enclave. Thursday, Armenia said internet was cut too. Azerbaijanis continue trying to get full control for all the territories that they believe belongs to them. Anger in the self-governing but not internationally recognized enclave is growing. Seething crowds have been gathering, demanding Azerbaijan back off. But Azerbaijan's president denies it's involved in a blockade and has claimed Armenia is sending weapons into the enclave. The corridor is critical to peace. It was key to ending their war in 2020, when Azerbaijan scored significant success seizing territory. The problems are also deeper and more complex than first appear. Russia historically backs Armenia, sent troops as peacekeepers after the last war, but Armenia doesn't trust them. Its prime minister met with Russian President Vladimir Putin late December. The most urgent issue is the crisis we have in the Latin corridor, he said. And this is the zone under the responsibility of the Russian peacemakers. So far, Putin's not listening. 
Russian troops just feet from the Azerbaijani eco-protesters haven't stopped them. Nick Robertson, CNN, London. And our thanks to Nick Robertson for that report. A new survey released by the Anti-Defamation League finds in the United States widespread belief in anti-Semitic tropes is at a level that has not been seen in decades. And that brings us to our pop culture lead today, because in this age of rising anti-Semitism comes a provocative streaming series. Amazon Prime's Hunters, starring Al Pacino, envisions a world where Adolf Hitler did not take his own life and where his supporters are trying to create a Fourth Reich in the United States. The second and final season of Hunters dropped today on Amazon Prime. I'm putting everything on the line. We fought these monsters. We fought them. We hunt him down and kill him. If not us, then who? Here now to discuss is David Weil, the creator of Hunters on Amazon Prime, which I need to disclose is a show I love. Um, David, I want to talk about season two in a moment, but but I do want to start with how this entire concept for the show came about, because obviously the Holocaust is an incredibly personal story for you and your family. Yes. Well, Jake, thank you so much for for having me. Uh, Really, really appreciate it. And so excited to talk about the show and about where the show came from. It it started with my grandmother. Her name was Sarah Weil. And this series is a love letter to her. Uh, My grandmother is a survivor of Auschwitz-Birkenau and Bergen-Belsen. And when I was very young, she started telling me the stories about her experiences during the war. She felt that her stories in the face of continued, you know, rising anti-Semitism in the 80s and 90s in this country, Uh, and Holocaust denial, that her story was a tool, right? It was a weapon and a seed. And so she needed to continue to tell the truth of what, you know, uh, she experienced. And so I felt a great sense of of, uh, responsibility, a real birthright as the grandchild of the survivor to continue her story in some way, to continue to really depict her light, her heroism. And though this is a fictional series, uh, it encapsulates and captures uh, the heroism of survivors like herself. And, uh, and I'm just so excited uh, to be speaking with you about it. Yeah, no, it's such a good show. It's so compelling. Um, there's a season, there's a scene in the first season where you see uh, an inmate chanting, Jews will not replace us, which is something that we heard from the Tiki Torch idiots at Charlottesville a few years ago. I wonder what it was like for you right. to see anti-Semitism and even Nazism gaining acceptance in real life. There's a Holocaust denier or two that just had dinner with President Trump so many years after the Holocaust, um, we're, we're, it's really becoming mainstream. People aren't even trying to hide it. You know, it, it's so true, Jake. When, when we sold the show, Jordan Peele and I, uh, back in 2019, uh, and we took it around town, people were questioning its relevance, right? And, you know, the urgency of the show uh, hits now more than ever. It's almost like, you know, because of the sort of widespread acceptance of white supremacy, of Nazism, both in in coded ways and in more, you know, uh, doublespeak uh, ways and also more overt ways now that we see uh, this show, the relevancy, uh, especially for a wider audience who may not experience the kind of anti-Semitism that the Jewish community does on a daily basis and has, you know, since the dawn of <laughs> that, that Jews have, have been around. Yeah. Um, but I feel culture and society are, are catching up and beginning to see just how pervasive and how insidious 
obvious uh, anti-Semitism is. And you also have a subplot uh, in season one, and this is not a spoiler, but, but, but based on the very real U.S. government Operation Paperclip, which our viewers might not know about, but yes. was a, a, a very sad effort. Uh, well, you t- t- tell our viewers what it is, Operation Paperclip. Absolutely. And look, you know, I'm a student of the Holocaust. My grandmother, my grandparents both were survivors. It was a story that I did not know about until a few years ago, you know, just before writing the series. But essentially, the U.S. government after the war brought over uh, a number of Nazi scientists uh, uh, into the United States to help build the rocket, you know, program, weapons programs and place them, uh, you know, throughout uh, the U.S. and in small towns and big cities to help Uh, our efforts in combating uh, the Soviets. And so really they whitewashed their records and gave them a life of freedom uh, and ensured uh, that justice was never delivered uh, to these Nazi war criminals. So very, very, you know, insidious uh, uh, stuff. Uh, And I don't want to spoil any of the plot for our viewers. If you haven't seen season one, it's on Amazon Prime. Season two just dropped today. But but, um, there's an interesting question about here, a question that you that you raise in the series, which is more important, justice or revenge? Uh, here's just one quick scene. If he was even alive, why would you give him up? You think I'm a man of honor? I'm a cockroach. I can help you find it. I can take you to him. You'll never find him on your own. Let me live. And I will bring you to Adolf Hitler in flesh and blood. That's the great Logan Lehrman and Dylan Baker. Um, it's a theme throughout the show. Uh, it's something that sits with you after the final episode ends. Tell us about that. Sure. You know, season one in particular, uh, the series questions, what is the difference between revenge and justice? And if you have the opportunity, which would you choose? And in season two, we try and offer an answer or a thesis at least, right? Which, you know, I think every audience member who comes to this will have a different point of view. Uh, And as you can tell from that clip, uh, he invokes Adolf Hitler still being alive. So season two is very alternate history. It's set in 1979 with the idea that Hitler did not commit suicide, but instead he escaped down the rat lines uh, to South America. And, and the reason to invoke Adolf Hitler in this is that obviously, you know, in true history, he evaded justice. He was never brought to justice. As a Jewish kid growing up, that, that filled me uh, with such fury. You know, he was not only the villain in the world story, but in my own very personal story, because he was my grandmother's villain, right, in her own. So, you know, I hope by invoking him and delivering justice in some way this season, uh, we get a sense of catharsis for the audience, a, a little bit of wish fulfillment, though fictionalized. Um, and so I'm very excited for people to tune in and see that happen. It's a, it's a brilliant show. Uh, it's a brilliant show. David Weil, thanks for making it. Thanks for being here. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Jake. Thank you. Be sure to tune in this Sunday to CNN State of the Union. I'll be talking to the new chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Republican Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, plus the ranking Democrat on the Oversight Committee, Congressman Jamie Raskin from Maryland. That's at 9 a.m. and noon on Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. All two hours, just sitting there like a, like a giant watermelon. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room after this short break. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, We want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.